Hi everyone, and welcome back to our Risk and Regulation Rundown podcast. I'm Andrew Strange, your regular host, and in today's episode, we're going to be tackling ESG, a topic that many politicians, policymakers, and the regulators have all been very busy with recently. I'm joined by two interesting guests. We've got Lucas Penfold, who's a senior manager in my Regulatory Insights team. He specializes in ESG and asset management. And then Declan McGinn, a senior manager who works in our sustainability and climate change practice, supporting more of our banking clients on ESG, ESG transformation. So, Lucas, um, in case you missed it, we've just had COP26, which clearly was a catalyst for regulators and government with a, a range of initiatives in the ESG, ESG space. Do you want to just start by setting the scene for us in terms of some of the key messages from COP26 uh, for financial services firms? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Andrew. Um, it's, it's, it's worth sort of taking a step back and actually just sort of pointing out, I think, that finance got quite a lot of attention at this COP, which I think is... Um, is a slightly different approach to previous COPs, actually. Um, there was actually a, a finance day, which I think is, is probably quite quite telling. Um, I mean, for, for me, I think there were, were a couple of sort of particularly key sort of headline-grabbing um, announcements, which are sort of noteworthy. Um, those are, so that there was one that, that, that came through um, the, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for, for Net Zero, um, bit, of a, bit of a mouthful, but um, essentially that, that's the group that was driven by Mark Carney um, in his role as the UN Special Envoy on Climate Finance. Um, and what this group tries to do is, is really just bring together a range of financial services institutions um, globally. I think there are around 160 institutions that, that signed up to this. Um, very much focused on trying to drive the, the FS sector's efforts to, to support the transition to a, a lower carbon economy. Um, and actually, I think you know, it's, it's quite a big deal um, because I think collectively these Financial institutions have something like 130 billion um, trillion dollars, sorry, at their disposal to to try and support that transition. So, so there's that, that's going quite some way to to sort of mobilising the level of um, private finance to to support this this broader agenda. Um, and then the second um, key key headline I think that, that came through it actually came from from the Chancellor, um, and he made a, a commitment to to make the UK um, the first net zero aligned financial system. Um, uh, we're expecting to see more details on that in, in due course. I think that the government is, is planning on um, uh, revising its green finance strategy next year. So I think we'll, we'll get a better sense of what that means in practice um, when, when we see that document. Um, so, th so there were a couple of, um, as I say, sort of headline grabbing pieces that, that came out of COP. Um, there were some sort of tangentially um, linked um, sort of more concrete regulatory developments as well that, that we saw. Um, I think the, the most notable one here is the the um, UK government's um, uh, uh, sustainable finance regulation roadmap. Um, that, that came out from, from the Treasury a couple of weeks before before COP. Um, and, and, and I think that, for me, that had sort of two key pieces, which actually say quite a lot about the, the uh, general direction of travel for, for UK FSESG regulation. Um, the first is, a, is a, a UK green taxonomy, which I think is, is sort of following in the footsteps in many, um, in, in many ways from, from what the EU's been doing on, on taxonomies. Um, and then the second piece um, is, a, is a new uh, economy-wide ESG disclosure regime, um, which tries to sort of bring together the corporate reporting for ESG and the reporting that, that financial services firms um, will, will, will need to make as well. So, so I think sort of bringing it together into that sort of more integrated framework is, is probably a welcome development for, for the industry. 
Okay, I mean, lots of acronyms there. I mean, uh, amongst some of the publications we've seen, we did see the regulators' climate adaption reports. Can you tell us a little bit about what they say about the future direction that the regulators are going to be taking on this topic? Yeah, so so the background to, to, to these reports was, was essentially, so, so the UK regulators now need to incorporate um, climate change considerations into everything that they do, so their operations, when they're discharging their um, their, their duties under under FISMA, when they're meeting their, their, their objectives as regulators. Um, and, and, and essentially these reports are, are the regulators first um, uh, take at reporting back on how they've been doing this um, over the past year, and I think sort of setting out plans for how they're going to do this going going forward as well. Um, there were pretty big reports. There was lots of detail in them, but I think for, for me there were uh, two or three highlights that, that are worth calling out. Um, I think with the, with the FCA report, um, I think it's quite interesting that yes, there's lots of more concrete regulatory initiatives that are coming through, which I've sort of touched on already. Um, but actually, one, one of the sort of strong messages com coming out of that was that the FCA is going to be playing a more active role in supporting market-led um, mechanisms as well to support the, the transition to, to net zero. So it's not just about sort of pure um, uh, formal regulation. The regulator is going to, to try and play a role in, in, in supporting the, the private sector to, to, to really sort of take ownership ownership of this as well. Um, uh, and then the FCA also sort of talked about um, placing more focus on, on climate adaptation, which I think I think is, is interesting. I think there are sort of links there with the, the sort of concept of a, of a just transition. Um, and that then gets you into all sorts of interesting social issues that, that arise as part of that debate, you know, sort of certain types of groups of consumers perhaps sort of getting left behind um, as, as we sort of transition and, and adapt to a, a, a sort of lower carbon economy. And I think, um, you know, if you think about some of the broader agenda that, that the regulators taking forward, the consumer duty, um, the vulnerable customers agenda, for example, I think there could potentially be some inter interesting sort of interconnections between um, climate and ESG and, and, and some of that broader sort of social consumer facing um, uh, focus that, that the regulator is going to be um, engaged with over the next couple of years. Also, I'm thinking the, the inclusivity part of the DNI agenda that the regulators got as well, and inclusivity of products. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that all makes sense. Yeah. And I guess we'll probably see more of that kind of stuff from the, the future regulatory framework proposals that the government came out with fairly recently, where they talked about actually changing the sustainability um, objective measures to include net zero and things too. So I think we'll see more of that. Yeah. Yeah, there's some interesting things. And then actually, so, so I think that's the sort of FCA piece. And then the third point I was going to just mate was around what we saw in the PRA's report. Um, you know, those that have been close to this topic will know that the PRA, from a from a banking and insurance perspective, has been very focused on climate risk over the past few years. Um, there was a. A, 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 a dear CEO um, letter um, last year, which followed SS319. The message there is very much around how banks and insurers need to fully integrate climate risk into their risk management frameworks by the end of this year, 2021. Whereas actually the tone from, from this report from the PRA was that actually it's moving very much to the next phase of that, that work. So looking at um, how effectively firms have embedded that and, and really sort of placing a lot of supervisory focus on on, on, on firms' approaches there. So, so I think I think the, the, the tone suggests quite quite a sort of strong, strong focus on this, which which is interesting, clearly clearly something that banks and insurers will, will need to look out for. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I mean, you, you talked there a little bit about the sustainable finance roadmap from Treasury and then also FCA's sustainability disclosures uh, proposals. Can you tell us a little bit about those proposals and what they actually mean for firms? 
Yeah, so this, um, so so the FCA DP that came out um, uh, again just shortly before before COP um, was was around the the UK SDR, so the UK Sustainability Disclosure Regime is another another acronym for you, um, which which is one of the the main elements of the roadmap. The other piece I think I mentioned was the the UK Green Taxonomy, although we're, we're going to see more detail on that in in, in the new year. Um, but on on SDRs. Um, as I say, it brings together um, uh, the corporate reporting piece and the and the um, financial services reporting piece, and and really, it's the UK's answer to um, CSRD again, another acronym for you, and SFDR to, to provide that sort of integrated framework. Um, as you'd imagine, the FCA's DP is very much focused on, on the thinking around the FS component of, of the SDRs and how that might develop. Um, there are sort of three key parts to this. Um, the, the first is you, you've got a, a product labeling framework um, so that firms are able to, to classify their investment products depending on the level of ESG focus that they get. Um, and this is very similar in, in nature to, to, to the SFDR, um, sort of Article 6, 8 and 9 contract, which, which firms will be very familiar with by, by now, although it's not perfectly aligned, which I think could create some, some interesting challenges for, for the industry. Um, You've got a, a, what are being sort of badged as a consumer-facing set of disclosures, which are very much aimed at um, retail investors. Um, so, so with a with a sort of a, a, a more higher-level basic set of information on on the ESG features of, of, of a fund or an investment product um, at the level that, that a retail investor might 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 expect to, to see. Um, and then you've got um, a, a more detailed set of disclosures that are focused on um, more sophisticated institutional investors, um, which which actually are going to get into a lot more granularity around. Um, things like um, you know, the methodologies underpinning development of metrics on ESG, um, on how, how data is being used, and some of the data limitations that that that, um, that might exist in, in in how those metrics are being reported against. So, so there's a sort of three-tier regime to this, and, and that's what's being envisaged by by the regulator. Um, I think, in terms of what that means for firms, it's it's, it's going to create a lot of a lot of work for firms. This is a, a, a big deal. Um, it's a big big sort of regulatory development. And actually, I think a lot of our FS clients are going to find themselves caught by the UK regime and the EU regime. So things like SFDR, um, most most notably, and there's a lot of overlap there. So so clearly, that's going to be something that firms are going to have to, to think through and, and manage as they they work through all of this. Um, and, and actually, I think that sort of points to a broader sort of trend we're seeing in the industry. Um, and, and the, the types of conversations we're having with clients now is very much around you know, how, how can they be thinking about their ESG regulatory response more thematically rather than working through each each bit of individual regulation one by one. Um, and actually, as I say, I think, I think that's the, the sort of general sort of direction of travel for the industry now to start thinking in those terms. Okay, well, I mean, it sounds like a good, 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 good point to bring Declan into it here. I mean, I suppose I make the observation, we talk sometimes about how much energy it takes to, to mine Bitcoin. I do wonder if we, if we stopped creating acronyms in the ESG space, how much could we reduce the overall uh, impact on the environment by? Um, uh, Declan, I mean, Lucas has talked about some of the sort of specific regulatory points there. Obviously, you're working closely with a number of our clients on this space. I mean, more broadly, so where are firms starting and how are firms engaging in this? Well, clearly, regulation is a big driver. I think we all 
um, acknowledge that when our clients are told by regulators to do something, it tends to drive action. Um, unlike other drivers, I'd say that it's the time. Yeah, yeah, it, it tends to get things done. So, um, and going back to some of the the regulations that Lucas mentioned. Um, and those acronyms, many of them had the letter D in them, and the D often relates to disclosures. But I think there is a danger that our clients focus too much on the disclosure and reporting component, because for me anyway, the, the disclosures and reporting tend to be very much downstream of other processes that need to be um, developed and, and, and uh, refined in order to get to the reporting and disclosures that you want. So. For me and, and, and the clients I work with, we, we typically start to define what uh, a compelling ESG strategy would be and what that means in terms of a vision for the firm and how that connects with their purpose and their um, ambition to continue to do what they do in the market with their customers and counterparties. Um, that can sometimes lead to developing new products or expanding into new markets, perhaps. Um, it might be working with a new set of counterparties or working with existing counterparties in a different way. Um, but once all that is, is um, agreed upfront, I think it's really important to understand what data is needed to underpin that so that those processes can be delivered so that appropriate MI can be developed that will inform management and governance committees as, so that they can track progress against whether the strategy is working, how it's being delivered, um, and, and that remedial action can be taken as, as required. Um, it's only then, I think, that you can start looking at reporting and disclosures, because for me, that's what you communicate externally. And what is communicated externally and needs to be very, very well considered because you, you start making commitments in your disclosures, um, you will be held to them. I think that's uh, that's fair to say. Um, so I think anything that goes into that public reporting really needs to reinforce that ESG strategy um, and any other uh, messaging that's going out to investors and other stakeholders, including regulators. Okay, it's interesting. And you, yeah, you, you talk about the D for disclosure. I always think of, of, of D in, in data terms as well. I mean, it's so, so inherently linked. I mean, it, it strikes me that this is this is a bit different, and that firms need to think about how they resource this quite carefully. Um, you know, I'm hearing a lot about some of the challenges around upskilling people on ESG. Um, how are firms dealing with that? And uh, I know from internally at PwC, is there any kind of useful lessons or experiences that we've had in terms of we how we've been upskilling our people? Yeah, that's a good question, Andrew. I think um, in my experience, the last year, year and a half or so, most of my clients' focus in relation to ESG training was on training up the board and executive management and, and those governance committees. I think that's largely driven by some of the requirements of both PRA and TCFD um, initiatives. but. Now that you know we're approaching that end of 2021 uh, deadline for fully embedding climate risk across the framework that Lucas mentioned earlier, um, I think the focus is definitely shifting so that the, the training covers front office personnel as well. Right, yeah. By getting the training right at that level, you can really embed climate risk as part of your culture. You can reinforce that in your messaging with customers and counterparties in the market. and 
I've been working with a, a number of banks recently to help them develop an ESG training program for uh, client relationship managers and um, other uh, staff that would be on, on the coal face who are interacting with customers and counterparties directly on a day-to-day -day basis. So these people are facing increasingly knowledgeable people in the market. So it's really important for them to not just know what the ESG issues are, but what their firm's response to it is through that ESG strategy and vision. So I think if they're fully engaged in the topic and bought into their firm's strategy, they'll be championing that in the marketplace and that will result in them being able to identify opportunities to support clients in a new way, whether it's those new products or um, new markets that, that we talked about. And the second part of your question was about our PwC journey on this topic. And I'm fortunate enough that for the last couple of years I've worked in our sustainability and climate change practice, but that team's existed for over 15 years. Wow, okay. the it's, it's not a new thing that, that we're doing, but in response to this rapid um, rise in prominence of the topic, rather than expanding that team, we're really trying to embed it across all of our business. Mm -hmm. Um, firstly, by providing better access to specialists as needed for all of our um, businesses. But secondly, by providing a base level of ESG training to all of our staff on broad ESG topics, but also on specific um, hot topic areas, the first of which was recently launched internally uh, on climate risk. So um, by doing that, you're getting everyone up to a base level of knowledge where they too can have those conversations with, with their clients. Um, and and, and it, it just reinforces um, everyone's base level of knowledge on, on this important topic. I mean, so you talk about that sort of rapidly changing agenda there, Lucas. I mean, as we head into 2022, what can we expect from the regulators? Are there any particular key deadlines or dates that firms need to be focused on and how are they going to meet them? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's fair to say that 2022 is going to be a very busy year for firms on, on ESG regulation. Um, I think partly driven by the fact that actually, you know, we've, we've seen that step change in how UK regulators are thinking about ESG. So that's really sort of shifting the dial and adding to the, the list of things that, 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 that firms need to engage with. Um, I, think, I think there are a few few aspects to, to this. So um, there, there are certainly some, some hard compliance type deadlines um, that, that that the industry needs to, to, to be on top of. So, um, for example, the FCA's rules for, for premium listed companies to, to report on TCFD, um, that's going to be a, a really clear uh, clear focus and, and a number of our financial services clients will, will fall into that sort of category of listed companies. Um, so that's certainly keeping them very busy. Um, the, the first annual uh, reports, um, including those disclosures that are subject to the rule, um, will be published I think, from, from spring 2022. Um, so lots of work for firms to do to, to get this over the line. I know certainly, I'm sure we're all very familiar to, to Declan as well. Something I'm hearing a lot about is that firms are still um, struggling to, to get their head around some of the, the scenario analysis piece and getting hold of certain data that, that's needed to, to support that work. Um, so I think for me that, that that's likely to go right up to, to the wire and inevitably there'll be um, sort of follow-up work, you know, sort of supervisory reviews and, and, and the industry really sort of 
tightening their approaches as we as we get past that first deadline as well. So definitely a piece around TCFD. Um, another hard regulatory deadline for firms in 2022 um, is on on the EU side actually with SFDR and the EU taxonomy. Um, the first taxonomy disclosures are due in in January, um, but but actually what we're seeing is that firms still don't have access to lots of the data that they need from corporates. Um, to be able to, to meet some of those disclosure requirements. So, so actually they're very currently very focused on getting comfortable with what an acceptable um, approach looks like for, for day one and, and, and how that then needs to be developed beyond beyond the January deadline. Um, and, and on SFDR, um, the main work there will be, be around aligning with the, the um, level two RTS, which um, uh, is expected to kick in from July next year. Um, so firms will, will you know, need to establish a clear plan for closing any gaps between what they're currently doing and what's what's set out in the RTS, um, and then working pretty quickly given the timetable time to, to actually sort of execute that and, and close those gaps. Um, data strategy will be really important here, and that's a big theme within um, SFDR and actually across ESG more broadly, clearly, as we've been touching on. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of data that firms need to collect around things like the principal adverse impact reporting um, obligation under, under SFDR. So, so that's, that's going to be a very big focus, I think, for, for firms over the next few months. Um, and then in, in addition to some of those more sort of concrete uh, regulatory deadlines. I think firm, the other thing I'd say is that firms need to be on top of the the different regulatory proposals that, that are due. I mean, we, we've touched on some of this already with things like the the UK SDRs. We're going to see a CP from um, from from the FCA in Q2. Um, there's going to be a CP on um, the climate related objectives for the UK taxonomy in Q1. There's a lot there. There's a lot there, yeah. there's a lot there. And, and so there's, for me, there's a, a sort of a, an important sort of horizon scanning piece that firms are going to be very focused on um, next year as well. Yeah, and it's interesting as well with that kind of EU UK potential divergence around some of this. It, it's still something that impacts UK firms. So that horizon scanning piece can't just be focused on on UK initiatives. Yeah, yeah. And you did that without mentioning the new committee for creating new acronyms in ESG, which they're going to have to, to spend a lot of time working on. I mean, I mean, Declan, I'm assuming that sort of resonates with you, but I mean, what, what's your perspective? What do you see over the next few years in terms of the biggest challenges for firms? Yeah, well, it sounds like they've got a, a lot to do with already <laughs> from what Lucas has just outlined, but um, adding to that and kind of building on the, the, the climate risk requirements from the PRA, uh, I would suggest that you know, once that's, that initial deadline of end of 2021 has passed, there will be remediation as we learn what the PRA actually mean by fully embedded, what, what they mean by proportionate. Um, some of these subjective terms will be clarified, particularly now that they have come out to say that um, skilled person reviews could potentially be used as, as part of their armory to uh, um, in, enforce this. Um, but I think thinking a bit longer term, um, for me, some of the the next big challenges I see on the on the E of ESG are going to be around carbon emissions. Um, going back to COP26, a lot of the focus was around achieving net zero. Um, I think most firms, particularly banks anyway, who, who I would be closer to, most of the banks in this country have, have made some sort of a net zero commitment by now. Um, and many of those have announced how they plan to achieve net zero in their own operations within a, a certain time frame. 
but as of uh, today, anyway, I think very few of the the banks have published how they achieve to how they plan to achieve net zero across their financed emissions, mm -hmm. um, and I think that's going to be a, the real challenge. And yes, it's great that banks can can achieve net zero for their own operations, but the big big challenge is going to be how they they clean up their their lending portfolios and their their trading portfolios and and and, and that that's that's where their, their biggest exposures are some of our analysis shows that 97 plus percent of a bank's carbon emissions is within their financed portfolio wow. um so they can only ignore it for so long um, and it's a big big challenge and it touches on some of the the components that lucas mentioned earlier around data availability and robustness um scenario analysis and stuff like that's going to be really really key to to understanding um some of those impacts but in my opinion the, there's going to be uh for this to be a success we need really good cooperation and partnership with the public sector in particular to decarbonize um, people's homes and the, the national grid. Uh, and, and that's gonna have a knock-on impact for, for everyone. So I think when, when we get there and when we can effectively support industrial transition to, to low carbon um, and improve the investment in renewable energy, all of which has opportunities for, for, for the banking sector, um, I think that and the supporting infrastructure is, is going to be the, the big challenge. And in some ways, it's the key challenge of our generation, perhaps. Um, but I think if we get it right, the, the rewards are very tangible for all of us, you know, not just uh, at, a, at a corporate level, but um, for each of us as individuals, too. Agreed. Thank you. That's very interesting. Okay, well, thank you both for joining us. I mean, there's an awful lot there that we can reflect on. There's a, clearly a really busy agenda going forward. The horizon over the next couple of years is going to be phenomenal, both in the UK and Europe. Uh, I think the, 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 the carbon point's also really interesting and well-made, Declan, too. Um, to our listeners, I hope you've also enjoyed this. Um, if you have, please do subscribe for future episodes and please do rate us because that allows other people to find our podcast too. Um, I'll be back next month with a, a, an interesting episode focused on the future of insurance and asset management and wealth. Thank you.